Um, we've been calling this series uh, just uh, what I, I think the scripture kind of points to, that this is one of the, the high points in, in scripture. And again, it's not that it's more inspired than another part, but what I would have liked to have done by the time this series ends is to encourage and strengthen your heart first and foremost, and then so that you could be able to use God's word as a, an apologetic tool in the world. And today we're going to be looking at the doctrine of adoption. Um, Romans chapter 8, and I'm, uh, for the sake of, of time, I'm going to read verses 12 through 17, if you'll permit me. Hear now God's holy and inspired word. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. All flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the power of your word. That it both heals us, convicts us, causes us to righteousness. But it also enables us to go into the world and tell others about your saving grace. And now, Father, I pray that through the proclamation of your word, through the reminder of baptism, through the singing and the praying, that our hearts may be full and that we might come to a, a more perfect wisdom and knowledge of you and our calling and what is that great inheritance of ours. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The Romans had an awful practice known as exposing their children. The practice was written in the Roman law code. The practice went something like this. If a child is born and the father doesn't want it, it was, if it was an illegitimate child, if it was deformed, if it had illnesses, the family was poor and simply couldn't take care of the child. They would take the child to a designated place, put it down, and then leave it there to die. Remember, this practice was written in Roman law. The Christians during that time, historical records teach us, would go to these places where these children were exposed and pick them up. Many of these Christian families would take them in and care for the children. 
Many of them were poor and couldn't afford to feed another mouth, but they would do it anyway. And many ask, why are these Christians doing this? What is their incentives? These children were not relatives. These children were not theirs. Why would they do such a thing? Well, the answer is the doctrine of adoption. Because in these children that were exposed and unwanted and illegitimate and deformed, they saw themselves. They understood that they were children of God, once deformed spiritually, once illegitimate spiritually, once poor spiritually, once unwanted spiritually. They understood that like these babies that were exposed by the Romans, they were helpless. And unless someone came and drew them up and made them their child, they would be lost forever. It was the doctrine of adoption that did it. And beloved, if you are a child of God in here today, know this. You were not a child that was able to care for yourself spiritually. You were not in a position to take care of yourself, to lead yourself. No, you were exposed to the world. You were destined for death. You were destined to live life as a slave. And you were destined to live life spiritually in poverty. But oh, for the glorious reality of our adoption. So much so that John says in 1 John 3 and 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has shown upon us, that we should be called the children of God. You are no longer exposed. And you don't have to live that way. The glorious reality of the gospel is that you and I now are adopted and called sons of God. Now, women, you hear sons of God and you think, am I in there? Yes, you are. Paul, of course, couldn't say sons and daughters of God because that would make no sense. Only sons received an inheritance. Only sons were adopted. And so, therefore, that would make no sense to say sons and daughters. But by just saying sons in a public area or to the church, he included everyone. Now everyone has the potential of being sons and daughters of God. Adoption is at the heart of the gospel. There are many of you in here that have adopted children. And you know that special privilege of taking a child and making it your own. In fact, the word adoption actually means to take a son. To take a son. To take someone that was exposed and left aside, and bringing them into your family, and making them your own. And in this glorious text, Paul tells us three things that are true of you if you are adopted of Christ. And I want to go through them quickly. The first is found in verse number 14. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's the first thing. If you are a child of God, you are led by the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Some people think it means to get a direct message from God. 
I remember one day I was listening to TBN. I don't ask me why. That's not my regular habit. But I just happened to be listening to it. I want to hear how the other side is doing. And there's a preacher that came on there, and he said that God was telling him uh, that he needs a $55 million jet. And that God was also, the Spirit was also telling him that I needed to give, or whoever was listening needed to give. And they needed to give a large sum. And I said, that's interesting because I don't hear the Spirit's voice telling me to give to you. The fact of the matter is that's not how the Spirit leads us. If you are a child of God, you are not led by a direct message by the Holy Spirit. Instead, Scripture tells us that, first of all, the Spirit leads us through his word. That's how the Spirit leads us, through the word of God. John 16, 13 says this, When the spirit of truth comes, Jesus says, he will guide you into all truth. What truth is that? It is the truth of God's word. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God. And it's through the word of God that the spirit speaks to us as we read it and inhale it. I had a professor, um, whenever he gave a test, he would, um, he would uh, at the end of the test, he would say two things as he was trying to pick up the exams. The first thing he would say is this, time plus ignorance doesn't equal knowledge. So taking extra time doesn't work. But he also said something else that got my attention. He said the Holy Spirit doesn't work ex nihilio. It means this, the Holy Spirit doesn't work independent of God's word. The sad reality, though, is this. We are a generation that have more access to the word of God than any previous generation. And yet, by all measurement, we read our Bible less, memorize our Bible less, study our Bible less than any generation that has gone before us. And so I ask you, Christians, if we're not reading the Bible as much as past generations, listening to the Bible as much as past generations, memorizing it and studying it as much as past generations, what is leading you? What is leading you? The fact of the matter is we need God's word to lead us because it is through God's word the spirit works in and through us to lead us to truth. I'm reading, uh, just finished read actually, a biography of John, o of not John Owen, but John Bunyan. Most of you know him as uh, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. And it is said of John Bunyan that he was a man saturated by God's word. Spurgeon said of him, why this man is a living Bible, prick him anywhere, and you will find that his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. That means he was filled with the word of God. His contemporary, John Owen, and some of you know him, if you went to seminary, you had to read his books. If you were lucky, right? John Owen, one of the greatest minds of that time, was asked by the king, why do you go and listen to John Bunyan? He said, there is no preacher in the world that preaches like John Bunyan. No one captures his heart, captures the heart of man like John Bunyan. John Owen said, I would give up every bit of my learning if I could just have an ounce of what John Bunyan had. And what did John Bunyan have? This uneducated man read the word of God, and he was led by the Spirit of God.
question is, what is leading you? The next thing I will say is that the Holy Spirit leads us gradually, gradually. I love Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he that who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit leads us gradually. I remember I got some insight into this when I took my son. uh, We were on a trail. Mike Warren was leading us. And I had to lead him across a little ravine. And the water was rushing, and so he needed me to help him. My son grabbed a hole of my hand. And uh, Mike took a, a very beautiful picture of it. I remember afterwards I was looking at the picture, and as I reflected on that, it reminded me how the Holy Spirit leads us gradually. There are some of you inside here today You want the Holy Spirit to hurry up and sanctify you. Or maybe you might be sitting on the side of your spouse and wanting the Holy Spirit to hurry up, sanctify them. Or you might have children that you wish the Holy Spirit would hurry up and sanctify. But know this, the Holy Spirit doesn't work on our timetable. He works on his timetable. Gradually. Purposefully. That's how the Holy Spirit leads. Next and final under this point is that the Holy Spirit leads us to something. Notice we're being led by the Spirit. And the obvious corollary then is what are we being led to? The scriptures tell us that we are being led to Christ-likeness. If you look at the passage, notice in verse number 14, it serves as a bridge for what Paul said in verse number 13. We either live according to the flesh or live according to the spirit. So what does the spirit do? The spirit leads us away from living like the flesh and leads us to living in a Christ-like manner. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's his job. H.B. Charles said it like this. It is the will of God to have the spirit of God use the word of God to make us more like the son of God. That's the direction. And so the question is, is the Holy Spirit making you more like Christ? Is the Holy Spirit leading you to a point where you understand that you are being changed? You see, if you are a child of God, beloved, you are being led. And it's interesting. I know people who said they're being led by the Holy Spirit of God but it's always the Holy Spirit leading them to do the things they want to do anyway. You know, I feel like the Holy Spirit is leading me to date this very attractive girl. Really? Is the Holy Spirit really telling you to do that? Or I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me to take this job that makes more money. Really? Why not less job? Why not a less attractive young lady? By the way, all of you are attractive. I just, you know, rhetorical effect there. But the fact of the matter is the Holy Spirit doesn't always lead you to do the thing that you want to do. And in most cases, the Holy Spirit often leads us to do things that we don't want to do, but are necessary for the soul. So are you being led by the Spirit? Are you being led by the Spirit? The second thing that I want to show you today is this. The Bible says that we are profoundly loved by our Father. Verse number 15. 
Notice the text. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby you cry, Abba, Father. Now, Paul is not just an amazing exegete of scripture, but Paul is also an amazing exegete of the heart. And here's why I say that. If you read through the Bible, you will find that most, uh, most instances of the Bible, especially with Christ in the, in the Gospels, but even after that, the Gospel writers spend the majority of time helping us understand that we are profoundly loved by God. You see, most of us in here today understand justification. What is justification? Justification is being declared righteous. That's a, that's a legal act. Most of us understand that, that when we confess Christ as Lord and personal Savior, the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart, God declares us righteous just as if we had never sinned. But most of us don't experience that in our regular lives. The corollary of that would simply be this. If you adopted a child... That child belongs to you legally, but it takes time for that child to become a part of your family experientially. Let me explain it a little bit different. Remember the story of the prodigal son. And in the, pro in the story of the prodigal son, this comes out very clear. The younger son, remember, leaves, goes into riotous living, and then when he's at his very low, what does he say? He says, I will go back to my father, the legal. That's still his father. He still knows that person as his father. But then he says, but I will go back as a hired what? Servant, slave. Because in his mind, even though that was his father, because of his sin, now he thinks he's a slave. But notice also the older brother in that story. The same thing happens. The older brother gets angry at the father for sharing his love toward and spreading his love on the younger son. And in a fit of his anger, he says, Daddy, I served you for all these years. The word serve there is the word doulos, and it means slave. And so you see both of them had a slave mentality. Even though they were sons, they still had a slave mentality. The younger brother, when he sinned, the older brother through self-righteousness. So what does this mean for you and us? We're tempted to do the same thing. That's why Paul says here, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Because our natural temptation is to live as Christians with a slave mentality. Instead of understanding the profound love of God, that we don't have to perform. That we don't have to do anything to earn God's salvation. All we have to do is cry out, Abba, Father. And there's a reason for this. Remember that we live in a world of transactional love. We don't live in a world of sacrificial and profound love. What Paul is saying here in verse number 15 is that this is the covenantal love of the Father in adoption. 
I remember reading an article several years ago, and they said the reason why raising children is so hard in our time and why people complain in our current cultural moment that it's so difficult to raise children is because raising children is the last um, love in our society today that's completely trans, uh, completely sacrificial. If you have ever raised children, you know this to be the case. You have to love a child sacrificially. There's nothing transactional about that. Children are often ungrateful. Children often neglect to see the grace that you've given to them. Now, I know this is not universally the case. There are times when children are sweet and they are reminded of that. But if you're in the midst of raising children now, if you have raised children or you're about to raise children, you know this to be the case. It takes a tremendous amount of sacrifice to raise a child. And you cannot enter this relationship in a, contract, in a transactional way. And so many complain, it's so difficult to raise children. And it is. Because all we know is transactional love. You do this for me, and I'll do this for you. You care for me in this way, I'll care for you in that way. But what you see here in verse number 15 is the profound love of the Father. That as those adopted by God, when we cry out, no matter what our condition, he hears us, he receives us, and he brings us in. That's the profound love of the Father. Do you, do you understand that? Do you live like that? You see, if we live like this, we will be less critical of others. If we live like this, we will be more forgiving to others because we've recognized that the Father has forgiven us. When we live like this, we are more generous with others because we realize how generous the Father has been toward us. Again, John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we may be called the children of God. You are an adopted child of God. Notice lastly and quickly, notice the lavish nature of our inheritance. Verse number 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Now we're going to deal with suffering at another time, next week perhaps. But I want to focus a little bit on being the heirs along with Jesus Christ. Do you understand what that means? That's a glorious reality. That what's true of Christ is true of us. That whatever Christ gets, we get. That's, that's a tremendous reality. When I was growing up, I used to watch a show called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous by Robin Leach. You know, he was this uh, fruity, uh, not fruity, but, you know, just like kind of airy uh, uh, Englishman. And, and he would go around to people's houses and he would, he would uh, you know, drink champagne and show them the houses and various things like that. And I'd be sitting there as a child and I'd be like, oh, man, I wish I was, uh, I was adopted by these people. I mean, they had millions of dollars. I mean, it was incredible watching Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I, I used, to, you know, used to watch it and just dream. I wonder if, you know, I wonder if they need a, a Bahamian child. You know, they, they've adopted all these other children, you know, one from China and one from Israel and whatever else. I wonder if they need a Bahamian in the mix. 
But when I became a Christian, something else dawned on me. That I was arrogant. That I have an inheritance in heaven. That is uncorruptible. You see, if I was adopted by a wealthy family and they gave me inheritance, eventually I would spend the money. And eventually the house would crumble. And eventually everything that they gave to me would be gone. Anderson Cooper, many years ago, talked about how he was heir to the valuable fortune, but by the time it got to him, he had none of it. But the scriptures tell me that my inheritance is not of this world and it's incorruptible. We have a great security in Christ. We have great authority in Christ. We have great intimacy with the Father in Christ. We have great assurance with Christ. That's what this text tells us. And because this text tells us this, we know that our inheritance is sure. Brothers and sisters, do you understand what you have as a result of your adoption? I want to give us three implications, and I'll close with this. How does this apply to us today? Well, first and foremost, we get the blessings of a new parent. Now, in a room this size, I know for a fact that many of you probably come from families where you had awful parents. Maybe there's abuse there, neglect. I know many of you in here come from wonderful families. But the doctrine of adoption reminds those of you wounded saints who grew up with parents who didn't love you and who didn't care for you. But now you get a new father. And he will never leave you or forsake you. As David says, though father and mother forsake me, my Lord will never forsake me. Secondly, it reminds us now that Not only do we get new parents, but we get a new family. Look around. These are your brothers and sisters. The church is not a social club. The church is not a place where we just come and hang out with each other for a while. Around you are your brothers and sisters, and your calling towards them is to love them and serve them as you would your earthly brothers and sisters. Thirdly, it reminds us of our ultimate allegiance. You are a part of a new family now. And there are new family responsibilities. Chief among them is recognizing that when you leave this place, there are a lot of people that are exposed. And now you have to go and pull them off the trash heap by communicating the gospel to them. And fourthly, it's to be reminded that you have an inheritance. When all seems lost in this world, remember that you have that your older brother, Jesus Christ, went to prepare a place for you so that where you are, where he is, there you will be also. That's the glory and wonder of adoption. And I will add one more. Just like the early church adopted, for those of us in here, maybe God is calling you to adopt a child. I know Teresa and I have talked about it and prayed about it for a while, and it's on our hearts to do so. But there's a whole bunch of children out there that do not have parents that desperately need a godly Christian family to step in and provide a home for them. That's one way we can proclaim Christ. Maybe that's not for all of us, but 
perhaps God might be working on your heart in here today. I don't know. But it is desperately needed in a world where children are being aborted at alarming rates. And the bodies of children are not loved and cared for. Perhaps this is one way God is calling the church to serve if he has laid it on your heart. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the power of the doctrine of adoption that we have been given a great gift that now we are called sons and daughters of God. May that reality move us and that may that reality sustain us, I pray. Thank you for my brothers and sisters that are in here today. It is always a joy and a privilege for me to fellowship with them and to serve them and to love them and to do ministry with them. Bless us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.